Hey guys, welcome back to On The Bat Bar. You're joined by me, Christopher Manning, and I hope you're all doing well and surviving this crazy year of 2020. I mean, I thought 2019 was bad, but it looks like we have a contender here. As you know, this is On The Bat Bar. I interview industry leaders and experts from across the world who are in the drinks trade. Today, we're joined by Kirk Stoppenau, who is the owner of Kane and Table, which is a New Orleans bar, and it has also been awarded for its bar program based in French Quarter and it is a Cuban-inspired restaurant and rum and tropical-focused cocktail bar. So Kirk's a really interesting guy. He's actually been involved in lots of stuff and had some really interesting mentors along the way. So it's quite an interesting story. So I apologize for the audio interference on a couple of points. Apparently there was a few technical issues along the way, but bear with it, guys. It's still a really good show. We catch up with Kirk to hear about what's going on in New Orleans with the current situations and how they're surviving. And we also talk about his career and what's led him to the point now where he doesn't touch any alcohol, despite being in the restaurant and bar trade. So yeah, really fascinating guy. I think you're going to learn something quite nice here. If you hold on to the end of the show, you're going to find out who we are from next week. And we have some really exciting news. I'm doing a crossover episode with another bartender podcast. Now, I'm keeping it hush-hush. I'm not going to let you know who it is, but it should be a really good show. And you're going to find out a lot more about me. So, stay tuned, guys. If you like the show, please subscribe, head over to Patreon, join the community, and get some exclusive content from me. And other than that, let's enjoy the show. Peace. Benjamin Franklin once said, In wine there is wisdom, in beer there is freedom, and in water there's bacteria. No bacteria here. This is On the Back Bar, hosted by Christopher Menning, an industry expert, author, and bartender who's been in the industry for over a decade. On the Back Bar is your gateway to talking to the people behind the scenes at bars, distilleries, and vineyards around the world. We'll talk to the experts in the industry about future trends, people, spirits, cocktails, wine, and everything else. So kick your feet up, pour your favorite drink, and hang out on the Back Bar. This is Christopher Menning. Okay, Kirk, thank you so much for joining us on the Bad Bars today. It's great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's a pleasure to be here. But yeah, I'm doing well. You know, just hanging in there. Yeah, of course. I mean, we're all trying to come to terms with what's next and what we can do. What's it like in New Orleans? We, we, meant, we talked a bit earlier and saying everything's boarded up. Is it a bit of a ghost town? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's much like most places in the States right now and most places maybe in the world right now. We have a stay-at-home order in in effect. Uh, There's nothing, no bars are available to be open at all. Restaurants are pretty much just to go. There's basically just grocery stores, banks, and to-go food. So, and everybody's, it seems like everybody's doing a good job of staying inside and keeping healthy. Uh, so that's good, I guess. Well, it, it's good to hear New Orleans are, are sticking to the rules. We heard that in some other states there are a few protests going on. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's people trying to liberate Nebraska or something like that, you know. It's all a bit silly, I think, you know. But, you know, I, I hate to, I don't want to take away anyone's right to protest, but I think it's like you're not really helping the cause. 
uh, of getting everything opening by doing that behavior right now. But yeah, teach his own. Well, uh, we'll we'll save the doom and gloom for a bit later. <laughs> but yeah, it'd be great <laughs> to have the audience learn a bit about you and uh, sort of your career path into what's brought you to Canaan Table now. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was a you know, restaurant professional my entire life. I started as a busboy uh, at a steakhouse when I was a young man in high school. My aunt worked there, so she got me the job. Uh, I didn't really stick it out there too long because my parents thought the hours were too long for a high schooler. So I worked there for about uh, six months or so. Yeah, so basically, like I said, I had been working in restaurants my you know, whole young life. I worked for a group called Semolina. It was, uh, it was a, a pasta concept in the 90s. I worked for them for about 10 years. Uh, and I saw them grow from a three-store restaurant group to a 27-store restaurant group. Uh, I did catering sales for them, lots of different things, like working for them for those, that long amount of time. I really, really dreaded going to work, and then Hurricane Katrina happened. And after the storm, they were all like, we don't really know what's going to go on. We might close stores. You know, we can't really promise everyone's going to get a job back. And I was like, I'm going to take this opportunity to say someone else can have my job if it's available because I don't want to do this anymore. So I, so I basically was like, my life is turned upside down fuck it, I'm going to throw it all away and start over. So me and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, moved to Chicago. Uh, one of my best friends in the world uh, was a, uh, you know, we were playing music together our whole lives growing up. He had moved to Chicago, had a pretty successful venture there. So I got a job working at a restaurant uh, as, a, as a food runner. Uh, the first day I got into Chicago, I needed a job right away. I had no money. I had like $2,300 from FEMA, and that basically paid my moving expenses and got me a down payment on a, on a place. Uh, so I, I, got a pl- I got a job doing that, and it, it just so happened to be that the restaurant was owned by uh, a gentleman named Terry Alexander, and the chef was uh, Andrew Zimmerman. So both of those guys have become like my mentors in life. Uh, Terry owns one-off hospitality with uh, Donnie Vidia and Paul Kahn. They have like, you know, I don't even know how many restaurants they have now. They're, they're dear friends of mine. And, in, and Andrew is the Michelin star chef at Sepia and Proxy in Chicago. So basically, I kind of fell in with this group of dudes that were really killing it. Uh, and I soaked up everything they had to give me with a sponge. Like I basically questioned them about every aspect of food, every aspect of you know, why and how and this and the restaurant business and what does this and why is that? And they were both nice enough to give me every information uh, bit I was interested in. They turned me on to books to read. I got really deep into that. Um, On the food side, I got really crazy. I read like on food and cooking as like a leisure read, like shit like that. That doesn't, it's not even point, it's a pointless read. But I was just like, I want to like take as much, whatever, if I remember 10% of that book, I already know more than like 90% of people in the world, right? I kind of went that route with that. And then the restaurant had a partner that was stealing and all the cash deposits never made it to the bank for like three months. And when Terry found out, it was like kind of too late to save it. So the restaurant closed. Classic, you know, you know, fix your life, fuck your life. So I, uh, I, I did the, the restaurant thing there, it closed. Terry was like, look, I'm doing this concept in this building 
in three or four months, we're going to reopen. I really think you'd be good at it. Like it's this bar idea. And I'd like you to go to New York and check out these two places. And then like, if you're interested, you know, let me know. And I was just like, look, I'm interested because I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I did that. I went to New York and I went to Milk and Honey and I went to Death and Company uh, cocktail bars there, if you don't know. And then um, when I went there, I met Toby Maloney, who was going to run the Violet Hour, which is the bar that Terry was opening in Chicago. So I basically got turned on to like the fancy drinking scene, like sight unseen. I didn't know anything about it. I sat down at Milk and Honey and like was just like, what is this? Um, it was really, really interesting to me. I did. I, I ran at it as hard as I could. I read a bunch of books. Same thing. Like I'm a big fan of that model. Like you know, read what you can and like take in as much information as you can on your own, and then take whatever anyone else can give you on top of that. Is like a really good model to learn to do anything, in my opinion. So I kind of ran at that. Uh, we opened the Violet Hour uh, with like a three and a half week training before we opened. It was a ragtag crew of people there. Like nobody had real experience in the bar business on that level, uh, except for Michael Rubel, the bar manager, and Toby. After we got open, Toby went back to New York. So it was like hard scrabble. We kind of had to like learn to fuck up and fix things on our own for a while, which I think was like, like one of the best parts of working there. Personally, it kind of made this like pirate ship mentality happen. It was like everybody wanted it to work and we all had to make it work. So we were basically like poking each other when we were fucking up and applauding one another when we were doing well and like kind of maintaining that growth among us all, which is very amazing. You know, my wife, you know, well, she wasn't my wife, but she wanted to be my wife, uh, was like, I'm moving back to New Orleans. So I stuck around for a year uh, by myself and finished up my time at Violet Hour. I worked for Sean McLean, the chef there. I had a restaurant called Spring and Green Zebra. I did consulting for him through the help of Toby and Jason from uh, Violet Hour. They kind of helped me put together a consulting proposal and kind of explained the business to me and gave me my, and uh, so I did the work for Sean. I did, worked at Violet Hour. I took everything in as I could. And then in July, I moved back to New Orleans uh, right before Tales of the Cocktail. And Tales of the Cocktail, if you don't know, is like the biggest cocktail convention in the world. Oh, we know. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I'm not sure, you know, like some people don't know, but uh, it's, a, uh, it's a huge deal, right? Uh, everybody in the scene is here, uh, professionals, makers, you know, the business suit people, the cool kids, everybody's here. You know, pick your poison when you're here. You can make it happen. So I was like, well, if I'm going to move to New Orleans, this is like the best week I could move to New Orleans, right? I'm going to meet whoever the hell is interested in doing this stuff here. Uh, and I'm going to like maybe meet a brand or a person that can help me get some consulting work or like some sort of brand uh, work, whatever. I was just trying to bridge it together. So I decided move in that week. So I moved home. I went to Tails from like 8 a.m. to 2 in the morning on a tight schedule. I went to every single seminar, every event, every dinner, as I everything I could possibly go to. And I talked to everybody I could and was like, you know, who's from here? Where are you? You know, just trying to figure out what made sense. And in a dinner that uh, the Death and Company guys were holding uh, with Rob Cooper from St. Germain, uh, at a restaurant called Stella, which is now closed. Rob Cooper, who is, who is a good friend of mine, uh, rest in peace, sir. He, uh, he introduced me to Neil Bodenheimer, who's my business partner. 
And Neil had already started working on a project called Cure. Uh, so I kind of, we kind of had a meeting and did a shake hands deal. I would bring sort of like the cocktail bar expertise to the project. He would bring the like business savvy. And he's just like a much better business person than me by like a million times. So like basically it, at first it was like, we're, we're both going to bartend and do it. And like over time, Neil just was like, I have more important shit to do to keep this thing alive. So he kind of backed out and ran the business side of things more than anything else. Uh, and I kind of carried on the bar program. We had a really interesting crew of bartenders at the beginning. It was all people that were really into it. And they had all been running like a little program themselves, but no one had ever worked at a place that was like cocktail oriented. So I kind of helped guide that to the point of like making it very much like what it, what, what like the ideal cocktail bar should be and really pushing standards. So we ran that for years. Uh, we still have it. You know, we won the James Beard two years ago for Outstanding Bar Program. About four years after that, we opened a cocktail bar in a hotel called Belloc. It was focused on 19th century drinks. It was really critically successful. The drinks were amazing, but it was a hotel deal. It was real. Uh, we had never worked with a partner before, and we found we don't like it. So we, uh, we ran that project until the contract was up. Uh, and the hotel sold, so we closed it, and then we opened Canaan Table a little bit after Belloc opened, uh, and we've had Canaan Table now for seven years. It is a restaurant and bar. It's focused on a lot of Cuban-influenced food, and then, like, basically, like, kind of, our chef is a Cuban-American, Alfredo Noguera. Uh, he's, like, one of my best friends in the world. Uh, he's an amazing chef. He worked in Chicago, worked all over. He basically guides it kind of through like a Cuban lens with like a New Orleans thought process, but no New Orleans food. And then we run a bar program that is kind of focused around rum and like tropical when necessary. People love to want us to be a tiki bar. We are not a tiki bar. Uh, there is a really good tiki bar in New Orleans. If you want to go to one, I would highly recommend you visit Jeff Berry's bar. But we do do tropical drinks you can get coconut you can get passion fruit and stuff like that but we're not mixing tin rums together and putting them in a funny cup uh, i like i don't really like kitsch so i kind of lean out of that as much as i can but you know i'm not against fun so we still do some fun stuff like that you know we have a couple mugs and stuff like that for people that really want it yeah so that's basically my career in a nutshell i mean the the, the new additions are you know i have two kids um we have a Cure in the airport in New Orleans now, Cure MSY. Uh, we're partners with HMS Host there. It's a really been a really interesting project to do. Um, and, um, you know, we're working on a project in D.C. called Dolphins. Um, I don't know where that is right now, though. You know, we were supposed to get that open, like, this month. Obviously, that's not happening. So I assume we'll get back open, but I'm not sure when. Well, um, fingers crossed for that, for sure. Well, what a journey. You've, you've definitely been around with some incredible people as well. Cane and Table, I can't wait to talk more into that for sure. It's interesting that you're born from New Orleans, right? You, you grew up there. Yeah, and yeah born and raised. And you kind of went away, learned about cocktails. And when you came back, it, you know, New Orleans has become sort of a mecca of cocktails now. What was that like, that experience to come back and go, wow, my, my hometown's caught up with it all? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the, the, the thing with New Orleans is, like, it's always been, like, 
you know, a place that is bar focused, right? There's tons of bars here. Everybody knows New Orleans is like a place you can get a drink, right? And you can walk around outside uh, and drink your drink, uh, which is a big plus, right? For especially for people from like the states where that's 100% not okay. Um, and the classic cocktails here have existed since the 1800s. They've been around, like a Sazerac cocktail, the Vucare, the Ramos. All those drinks have been available somewhere every day in New Orleans since their origin days. The, 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 the process of making those drinks was a lost art for a while. Uh, it was interesting to come back and sort of kind of like you're walking through like the ghost of these like bars that you read about in the old in the old like cocktail books but few of them at the time were doing anything remotely close to like what was going on back then or what is going on now so it took some time but it was there was a lot of people that understood that history and respected that history and were doing it in new orleans the whole time but the thing with with that was there was always a guy at every bar that really was a good bartender in that world right like you could get a sazerac at this bar on a Friday because this guy worked and on Thursday you don't want to do it because it sucks and like so it was like very weird like I you would have like basically like a bartender schedule in your in your phone you'd be like (laughs) well it's Wednesday night I have friends in and they want to have cocktails so uh okay Ricky's working at the Loa hotel bar so we'll go there tonight you know (laughs) and then we basically cure we went out and basically sucked all those people out of those places and opened this one bar you know, so a lot of places lost that person that cared when we opened. But at the same time, at the time, ownership didn't care about them. So I didn't feel like we had done anything uh, uh, lascivious. Today, I would feel a little, a bit more dodgy about doing that. Uh, but back then, I mean, all these people were bringing their own bottles to work to be able to make drinks, which is a total bullshit proposition, in my, in my opinion, you know. So, uh So we were glad to give them a home and like bring them to like one place. And every one of them has gone on to be successful in one way or another. You know, that's the beauty of kind of the bar business, like being on the early side of it, especially is like so many of my friends when I first got into this business are now very successful at what we do. You know, Uh, and it's been cool to have like a, a, a like a huge group of peers growing older in this business together that have all seen lots of different things. So when something weird happens or a weird deal appears, we have people to lean on to get information to figure out what the best move for them professionally is, et cetera. And it's been really, really cool. It's such a small industry that really was a big deal for a long time and still is, you know. Good. And, you know, Cane and Table is, uh, is, is obviously on the map now. People know about it. And yeah. it's an award-winning bar program, James Beard. You know, the question I have is, is what makes it an award-winning bar program? How how did you come up with Cane and Table? Yeah, I mean, for us, it was, you know, we needed a, a concept that was like a delineation away from Cure. But at the same time, we wanted to keep it rooted in like the mantra of Cure. So the our, our, our like kind of bar model is the drink has to be recognizable as a drink uh, to someone from a hundred years ago as a cocktail. And, uh, and, and then it needs to be tasty more than anything else. Right. So, uh, so basically we kind of took the idea of like, you know, like what is like 
some history in New Orleans. Like rum's been a big part of like America and the world, you know, trade and all the terrible colonialism that occurred. Um, but nonetheless, rum is a really big part of history here. So we sort of thought rum would be interesting. It's a really broad category. And it also has like a lot of different flavor. Like to me, like a bourbon bar is like the worst thing in the world. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. It's like by <laughs> law, by law, every one of these things is exactly the same. So why do you need 300 of them? And I think that there are people that really understand the nuances of that and get that. But like, it's not as like very obvious as would be like a scotch bar or a rum bar or like a brandy and eau de vie bar. Those are categories, but the, the variance in flavor is huge, right? So our idea was like, you know, if you do a rum bar, you can have like really light, clean, dry drinks. You can have really sweet, luscious drinks. You have, you have like classics that are like, you know, the Hurricane in New Orleans is a rum drink that everybody knows and it's shit. Um, <laughs> so like, could, could we make that really good? You know, like, and then what does that even mean? You know, so we've, we've kind of took that idea. It was like, we, we knew that we, it was a restaurant and we knew we needed a concept that kind of intertwined one another. Right. So we, we took our basic aesthetic on drinks, put rum in the slot as like the focus. Um, and then we extrapolated that out to like what the food would be. And originally we kind of like thought about American Chinese because of like the tiki and Polynesian movement, which is basically American Chinese with pineapple put into it and like red cherries put into the food. Um, you know, uh, but we decided to kind of be a little bit more on the nose and say, okay, what about countries that produce rum? You know, like what are the, what is the food there? You know, and let's like bring some of that together and kind of see if we can build a cohesive message there. And over time, it kind of grew a lot more Cuban as we took Alfredo in. It's just better. It's in his wheelhouse. It's not uh, in any way appropriation. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a white guy. I don't, I don't have any, you know, roots in the Caribbean. You know, I can't really talk like I do, right? Alfredo is that dude. You know, his, he makes that food. His mom makes that food. I ate it growing up at his mom's house, you know? Um, so he brings that to us. And that, that really, like, gives it, it kind of has grown us into more like a Cuban-focused restaurant with a rum program and the drinks started out a little bit more tropical and tiki than they are now. We kind of leaned more and more away from that, you know, at the end of the day, like what sells is like people want old fashions, people want like simple sours. And then there's the people that want like an event cocktail. So we got to hit all of those and make the most sense of like how to do that. And that's kind of how I look at it. For sure. And it'd be really good to hear about some of the cocktails on the menu and how they actually incorporate into the food menu, too. So, like, we keep the menu um, on the drink side relatively small. Um, we just think it makes a lot more sense to keep the menu, like, under, like, 20 drinks. Like, and that includes classics and happy hour. Just, like, it takes a lot of time to go through a menu. Uh, and it's also harder to make, like, a cohesive message out of it. So, you know, we change it a lot. But we keep about seven what we call Canon Table Classics on board. So we have, um, we always have a Pina Colada. We always have a Mai Tai. We always have a can, uh, Hurricane. We call it the Hurricane and Table. Uh, and then we do like a couple of like classic tikis, right? I like the Sardis, the Green Isaac, like the kind of lean and clean versions of those drinks. And then it just depends on like what the menu is looking like at the moment and what's going on. So like 
you know, the seasonal cocktail menu that we have right now is uh, a little bit dated because obviously we've been closed for almost two months. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, but it's like a, it's a focused on like kind of easygoers, drinks that fit in the go cups and they're easy to walk around with because it's like festival season and post Mardi Gras season. And the, as far as like the food and the cocktail side, we don't really push that as an angle at all. My personal thoughts on pairing food and cocktails is that it doesn't really work. I've always been kind of more like classical in that sense. So we, we have a really strong uh, natural and low interventionist wine program that is tailored for the food. And, and, and we keep the same idea that we keep on cocktails on wine. Like, I don't care how interesting and cool it is. Does it taste really good? You know, is my mom going to enjoy it? And that's kind of the model there. So that's kind of like where we run things as far as drinks and food. My, my envisioning is like you come in, you have a cocktail because it's fun. And then you have dinner with wine because you're a grown up. (laughs) I've never been to New Orleans, although I definitely would love to one time. Um, Hopefully, well, I I was thinking this year, but obviously that kind of backtracked. Yeah, um, you can do it online this year. I think that's it. um, It'd be really good to hear about what the life is and the soul of New Orleans. Yeah, I mean, you know, New Orleans is like uh, a lot of things to a lot of people. I think, uh, and it's changed a lot since, uh, since I was younger, for sure. It's a much more popular place to visit than it ever was when I was a kid. I think Hurricane Katrina put the culture of New Orleans on blast to the world. And I think that really helped to, for people to understand that like New Orleans is more than just like, like a Vegas kind of scenario where you just like, go get fucked up and eat fried food, right? There's a lot of depth and history here. There's a multitude of cultures. Like growing up, Vietnamese culture is a big part of New Orleans culture, but like no one besides New Orleanians and pretty much people only from New Orleans East and from the West Bank of New Orleans really understood how much the Vietnamese culture was part of it, you know? Uh, and now it's grown. People really see all of that. And I think that's helped to change New Orleans in, in some great ways and some, in some ways that like, sometimes I'm not happy about, but like, you know, you can't, you can't, um, you can't want everyone to love you. And at the same time, want everyone to leave you alone. And that's kind of what New Orleanians kind of want in a, in a, in a weirdly, uh, I don't know how to say that in a weird way. You know, it's weird. Like we, we want people to appreciate what we do and like what we are as far as like a culture. And I think, how we see New Orleans culture is a place where you you are allowed to not be like on the move 24/7. It is not in a, it, it like in Chicago, if I like laid around for 2 days and didn't do shit, I kind of like didn't tell other people I did that because I would feel like I was like being shitty as a person. Uh, like I wasn't ambitious enough. And in New Orleans, like, you wear that like a badge of honor. You know, you put it on Instagram that you, like, all you do is drink five bottles of wine the last four days, right? And, like, that's, um, that's a big part of it. Like, the, the big thing with New Orleans is it was always so cheap to live. So, like, we, it brought a lot of, like, bohemian people to New Orleans. Like, people would move here that were artists because you could live for cheap. Everybody was chill. Nobody was giving you a hard time. The cops don't give you a hard time. Nobody really gives you a hard time, right? So you could do your thing, live your life, get drunk in the street, 
hang out. Everybody's friendly. Like at the grocery store, you're talking to everybody in line. You know what I mean? The people are telling you about their itchy foot and like, you know what I mean? It's just that kind of world. It's a very open, communicable uh, environment. And um, that's a big part of New Orleans to me. Like it's like everybody like, you know, people say like, oh, everybody's so friendly here. But I think people that are visiting here are mostly going to like hospitality restaurant, hospitality. I say like people that visit here talk about like the friendliness of people here and act like that is like the only way people here are allowed to be. But I think that's because they're mostly visiting restaurants where people are paid to be nice to you. And like in New Orleans, like if you're not nice and like a good person, then people don't treat you good. Right. So like that's like a, a general way. Like people will be like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Fuck you. Like if you're like a little bit shitty to anybody. Um, and I think that like we all want a place where you can kind of be your own person do your own thing. And if you want to like worry about like being productive and make a bunch of money, then do your thing. But like, if you don't, then don't fucking tell me anything about it. Right. Like if I want to sit around in my cutoff shorts 24 seven and like work just enough to pay my rent to paint or whatever, like that's cool. And like, I think, I think that part of New Orleans is kind of fading. It's getting harder and harder to do that. And I think that's just real estate in general in, a, in the world is kind of changing. And that's making that, that life harder. But I think that's like the goal of everyone here is to just kind of live their own life. Like, leave me the fuck alone. This is my, this is my thing. I don't really care. You know, I'll help you with your thing if you want help from me. But I'm not, I'm not here to prop you up. And I don't need you to prop me up. You know? So... Obviously, we mentioned the world has changed and it has dramatically yeah. and we'll still come to terms with what the outcome will be. What are some yeah. of the things you've put in place to help your business and help your staff now? So honestly, like we've kind of just frozen everything for a bit. Um, so when we found out that this kind of we, we sort of assumed that this thing was really going to turn into something big. And I think we we're a little bit early to that table and we decided as people that had gone through uh, like the hurricane and then like understanding what it would take to get inside of like a federal benefit system and like how you win at that game is like you get in as early as fucking possible because if you get in late, it's going to be, you'll be months before you get sorted. So what we did was basically we were trying to figure out a way to let our staff apply for unemployment but retain them. But there really wasn't a moment to do that. We had taken some meetings um, where the mayor and the governor were like, basically, they were basically like, look, if you if if we're going to we're going to close everything down. So I would advise you to furlough slash fire your staff officially and get them signed up for for unemployment as fast as possible. Um, so we did that a couple of days earlier than most people. Um, and set it up with computers in the, in, the, in the room. We talked to the staff, said, here's the deal. This is what we're doing. It's ridiculous that we have to do this, but like, I don't really know what else we can do at the moment. When we get back open, we plan to rehire everyone. You know, What that looks like is probably a slower process than everyone would like, including myself, but we'll see. So we kind of started that, started that way. We, we, cut in, uh, we cut all salaries, all payments out of the door. That includes myself, my business partners, my managers, everyone. No one has gotten paid. Our PR person is working pro bono. Like, you know, a lot of people stepped up to, like, keep things going. 
but like everybody just got turned off. And then we were like, looked for forgiveness, tried to figure out ways to not have to spend a little bit of money was our, in our checking account so that we'd have a little money to get going. Uh, we talked about doing to-go food, but we felt like the resources required and the money coming in weren't really gonna help us much. And if anything, it may cause us to spend more money than we needed to when we really needed some nest egg around. So we kind of just decided to say, fuck it, we're not doing it. At Cure, we had no choice. That's the law that we're a bar. So we weren't allowed to do to-go business, which is a bummer because it's in a neighborhood. And I think we could have done some business in this in these couple, this last month. Canaan Tables in the French Quarter. There's not a lot of people visiting, as you could imagine, in New Orleans right now. So there's no one coming here. Um, the French Quarter is a ghost town. It's like boarded up everything. There's a couple places open, like a quarter store or two. You know, there's nothing. So we basically have just been frozen, talking to the staff as when we can. We started a GoFundMe. Uh, it's the Canaan Table Relief Fund. If you have any uh, opportunity to help, that's that. Uh, those people, please go on the GoFundMe at Canaan Table Relief uh, Fund and donate a little bit of money. The staff, the money goes to the staff. We use it only for emergency purpose currently. So we basically started that so that if somebody couldn't get unemployment or someone had emergency, we could bail them out in that moment. Um, but almost all of the staff is on unemployment now with, with federal benefit, which has been great. And then we've applied for the couple loans available. And that's when you get into like the, the like bureaucratic like uselessness of some of these programs, like the, the, the uh, pay, Paycheck Protection Program. It's just like, does it make sense? Like, you, you give me a loan so that I can pay my staff, but I have to hire back 100% of my staff, pay them 100% of what I paid them before, and in eight weeks it runs out, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to open in eight weeks. Like, it, it's just like a crazy it, – it just seems like a, um, you know, what they call it, like a three-card Monty, like a shell game, you know, of like – of unemployment rates. That's really what I feel like the PPP is for, is to adjust the unemployment rate. But but some businesses, if you're allowed to operate, I think it works very well, right? If you are like a business that is, you know, can work from home and still do things, then the PPP program's great. Restaurants really need something else, in my opinion. There needs to be another way for that to work. Like, you can't just tell all these businesses to shut down for eight weeks and then just reopen and everything's going to be fine. Except now I can only have half the capacity in my restaurant at most. We're going to all have to wear masks. And how does that even work? Like when you go to eat at a restaurant, all right, so the staff wears masks and that makes you feel safe. But like everyone around you eating isn't wearing masks because they have to eat food. I, I don't even understand. We're going to have to make new masks that you can eat through um, <laughs> yeah. for it to make sense. So, I mean, right now what we're planning is we're actually going to start doing some to-go business again because we're about to get the go-ahead to reopen in the next few weeks, apparently. But that may change. Who knows? Our idea is we need to at least get in the restaurant, clean it up, shake the dust off with like a very small team. And it's pretty much starting with people that will work for free, like which are basically the business partners. Um, and we're going to get it going. Um and see if there's any like legs there with to-go business. Uh, if there is, we're going to start slowly taking people back as we can. Um, I don't want to ask anyone to come off of uh, unemployment for an unknown. 
Like, I, I hate to take someone and be like, right now you're making 800 bucks a week. I could pay you two. And we might close in a month. Like, what is that? You know, so, so our plan is to sort of kind of slowly move things in the gear and get things going. Um, we're really waiting on, in my opinion, this should already be out there, but there needs to be like a coded policy of how everything works when, we, when everything reopens. Like, do you have to wear a mask? Where, who has to wear a mask? What's there? What's going on? You know what I mean? What kind of cleaning products do you have to have? A schedule for cleaning. So we started to build, for us, we, we built out a, uh, a thing where, you know, we, you clean things with this certain chemical every 30 minutes. You, you know, you have to wear a mask. You have to wear gloves. You change those gloves every half hour. You wash the bathrooms every 20 minutes. You do, you know what I'm saying? Like, we have all this policy set in place for when we do get open, but like it's kind of flying blind right now because we don't know what the what like the basically general health code policies are going to be like. And like to me, I, I, the fact that there are restaurants opening in Georgia right now uh, and there's really no clear fucking rule is very weird and scary to me. Um, yeah. So I, I guess we're all going to have to figure it out on our own. Hopefully that's not the case. But uh, I think it's going to be weird. Like the restaurant industry in general is in trouble. Like we we are going to be asked to pay our, our original fixed costs that we negotiated with the idea that we could have this many seats full and this many turns and make this much money. And now all of our everything that we did when we were developing our businesses doesn't make sense because we're going to have to have half the business at our best. And like everybody that's in this business understands like this is a, you know, uh, if you take 10% off the bottom of this business, you are a masterful restaurateur or you own a, a Wendy's, you know? So, so I don't know. I just don't know how, how it all works. I think it's going to be very scrappy and I think it's going to be interesting to see how, how uh, many restaurants make it, you know? Yeah, it is a scary time for sure. Is there any resources you recommend uh, sort of bar owners or bartenders to look at right now? I mean, there's definitely some calls that I, we're, we're going to start working with World Central Kitchen, which is Jose Andres' organization. I would say if you are a restaurant and trying to get back open, I would reach out to them. They buy meals to give away to people that need meals. So it could be a way for you to help get a little a little bit of revenue and a reason to turn your lights back on and a reason to like hire a couple people back. Right. I think, you know, I honestly, I don't know what, where to go to read. All I do is call everyone I have known in this business my whole life and been like, what's going on. And like, I will say this, everyone says the same thing. I don't know what's going on. You know, but like no yeah. one knows the answer. If you're looking for the answer, make it up because that's as good as you're going to get. Like it, it, no one has a, has a firm idea what this is going to be like. I would say if you're a restaurant tour, as soon as the city kicks uh, your, um, the rules of engagement for your operations, you should be talking to your landlord about abatement, about uh, renegotiating your lease because no, no one else is looking for that uh -huh. space, you know. No one's going to come open a restaurant in your old space right now. So I would say it's worth the time to say, hey, can we get a little bit of discount here? Can we get help this way or that yeah. way? You know, you know, and as far as 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 far as like servers and bartenders, you know, United Way is doing some things. Punch is doing some things where we they have like happy hours for the bar. 
uh, and you can tip on those. I mean, anything you can do to be scrappy is a good idea. I would say also, you know, if you didn't love being in this business before, it might be a really good time to reevaluate your life, you know, and change. It's okay to like, to make a move, you know, make, now's the time to make a move. I made a move after Hurricane Katrina and it was the best thing I ever did, right? It changed my life like dramatically. And I had to just be like, I hate what I'm doing. I'm, ter- I'm starting over, right? So maybe, maybe some people, you know, will find solace in that, in that bit of advice. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's, you know? um, you know, you're right. It's, it's good advice and it's definitely the time <clears throat> for reflection for all of us 100 it's you know just to finish off and it's yeah. we really wish you all the best yeah uh, with the bar and hopefully it all goes well but it'd be interesting to hear about yeah. some you know well-being practices you've got in place or anything at home any rituals i know that it, it's quite well it's quite well known that you don't actually drink and for someone who's in the industry yeah. for so long it's that's quite unique so you must have a few tips and tricks there yeah i mean my my thing is um if you have problems with drinking in any way, right now is like the worst time for you to be drinking. There's no one around you to like keep you in check. You you can just drown in booze if you let yourself. Um, so I, I always say like if you are if you are trying to be sober or recently sober and it's like this type of this type of situation like a like a quarantine situation, you should avoid drinking. A hundred percent, like do something else, like exercise, take a lot of walks, call your mom, like do whatever it takes. You know, there's got to be someone that you've shared your, your, like your, um, your difficulties with alcohol with and like make that person like listen to you and talk to them. Another thing I find a lot of people have problems with is like getting kind of triggered by, um, by Instagram and like social media. Um, there's a lot of people like drinking and making cocktails on Instagram and social media. If that stuff triggers you, turn it off, like unfollow them. You can always explain to them why you unfollowed them if you feel the need to, but like do anything you can to get out of that, you know, that mindset, like that anything that's going to tempt you into drinking, I would say stop doing it. I don't know. I mean, for me, I, I, I was like, I didn't really drink until Hurricane Katrina. And then after Hurricane Katrina, I was like, had nothing to do for like a month. And I started drinking and like, I basically never stopped drinking until four years ago. Like, and I literally never stopped drinking. Like every single day I drank. So like now is the time where you build in these like weird addictions if you allow yourself. So like, just be, be careful with your drinking right now. It's very important for everybody, you know? And if you never really drank before, now's not the time to start, like, drinking a bottle <laughs> no, of wine a day. Definitely now. not. Um, you know? Hey, thanks, man. <laughs> I know? really appreciate it. It's, um, it, uh, no it's sound advice, and I really think, yeah, we should, we should all be careful, um, especially as we're all stuck at home. And it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, hundred percent, you know? I mean, I, I like, I'm a big 420 guy, you know? So I just, like... I have to say, I have to say, look, I can 420 at, at nine o'clock at night and that's my thing. You know what I mean? Like I, otherwise I would just get high all day and do nothing and it's not going to be healthy for me. You know what I'm saying? It's good. If anything, anything that you're doing to like avoid your entire life all day is a bad Very thing. True. You, know, right? you know, whether it's, whether it's video games or whatever it is or, uh, or making money. 
Uh, none of it's fucking healthy. Okay, thank you, you so much for coming on the show today. <laughs> really appreciate it. <laughs> Good luck. For thank the you, rest man. Of I appreciate now. it. Oh, thanks. We're, we'll be fine. You know, it may it, it may be really different, but in the end, I will make it. You know, one way or another, I may be an insurance salesman telling restaurants they're not going to get their money, but uh, I'll be doing something. You know. Okay, my lovelies, that was it. I hope you enjoyed the show and found it interesting to learn about Kirk and Cure. Uh, next week, we have the wonderful Camille Videl from La Maison Wellness. That was a super great chat. And we actually talked a lot about meditation, yoga, and what we can be doing now to look after ourselves. So yeah, stay tuned, guys. Please give me a follow. Catch up with me. If you have any questions, send me an email. Why not? And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking to you all next episode. Ciao, ciao.